0: Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Today's guest is Bridget Quinn, author of Broad Strokes and a Generally Incredible Woman. Enjoy the show.
1: Hi, everybody. I am here with the amazing Bridget Quinn, the author of the new fantastic book, Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Made Art and Made History in That Order. Welcome, Bridget.
0: Thank you. I'm super psyched to be here. So
1: I had to snicker at the um, at the dedication to your book that said, <laughs> <laughs> you know, t- it listed some people and then I guess Polly Ann Quinn, is that your mom? Yeah. It says, with love and admiration and apologies for the bad words.
0: <laughs> yeah. I yeah. I do apologize, but they were necessary. That's
1: so funny. That's something I would totally say for
0: my mom. <laughs> and my mom has been, I mean, she's so happy. My mom's 88 turning 89 next month. Wow. And, uh, lovely, open-hearted, open-minded person, but still shocked.
1: <laughs> right. So. As any good, a proper lady should be, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. exactly. So, you know, I think I was reading the introduction to your book and I was just blown away at how amazing it is. I mean, this at its core is a bit of an art history book. And so you might not think like looking at it, this is going to be really fascinating, but it's incredibly fascinating. And I want to thank you for this wonderful contribution to the world (laughs) because it's really important. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's
0: my, my fear is that people hear the phrase art history and immediately turn the other way, but I promise it's not dry, stuffy, boring, no. uh, daunting. It had,
1: it had me in tears. Oh, in a couple that's of places, awesome. But in a good way. And like the yeah. good, I'm crying, I'm crying happy tears when my children say, why are you crying? Oh, it's because I'm so happy. But it's <laughs> that kind of happy. It's very cool. So let's talk a little bit about how this book came about and how you came about and how the love for art was born um, 1987, yeah. you were in, it was like your first college year yep. and that, and it was a professor, right? Like your catalyst.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, the catalyst in some ways was, uh, an art history textbook that had, uh, supposedly began with the dawn of time in human history and ended in the early eighties. And it had 16 women in the entire book, which was something like 800 pages. And I went to this professor, my only female professor.
1: Now, 16 <laughs> and, female artists, right?
0: Yes. There was plenty yeah. of naked oh, women. that's <laughs> the thing. And, and I said to her, do you know, there are only 16 women in all of Janssen, which is the, uh, Janson is the author of this uh, standard, standard art history textbook. And she laughed and said, oh, you have the brand new edition. When I was your age, there was no women in it with their clothes on, meaning they were only the objects of art, the subjects of art, not the makers of art. Right. So I had an addition that was kind of a response to all the harping feminists saying there are no women in Jansen. So they found sixteen women. The first one appears on page six hundred. Uh, wow. Is to to grace us with, and it just it just lit a fire under me to say, can that be? Well, first of all, I realized now there was also some fear. It lit a fire to find out. Okay, there has to be more. And also a little bit of a fear, is it possible that women cannot be great artists? Right. And, you were kind of
1: scared to ask the question.
0: Yeah. And and it wasn't until I was in graduate school that that question was answered for me by becoming obsessed by an 18th century woman painter who had been lost to history, realizing what a master she was and realizing not only can women be great artists, but I want to be an artist. And that's what this was all about. And in my case, a a writer. Um, but this sort of passionate pursuit was a very uh, well. I don't want to say selfish, but it was you know plumbing my own fears and psyche and desires and hopes.
1: Did you find that by having that that professor did, was she did she give you some sort of? I always talk about when I started my journey into fitness and the spinning instructor Jerry Halff, and he gave yeah. me this strange permission. Yeah, Coach Monster, (laughs) Um, who gave me this like strange permission to kind of pursue this, you know, this triathlon thing, even though it was very foreign and scary to me. Did you find that she was kind of like that permission giver to you? Or was it just um, she was like a source of information?
0: I think she was a source of information. In fact, she was well known for being um, a scholar of minimalism which is very very male she wasn't particularly a feminist art historian in fact she wasn't she was just a woman art historian so a little bit awake mm-hmm. and it's just because she brought lee krasner in front of me and yes, said
1: i, w- I love can, this story
0: you can do your research paper on her that was the catalyst um but i would say it was the artists themselves who really gave me permission so it tell was their me, lives and work
1: tell me about lee krasner cuz that was like such a important part of the introduction to your book yeah. and that was really powerful.
0: So, I think the, the 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 biggest thing she did was to show Lee Krasner's work alongside that of Jackson Pollock who uh, is considered, you know, the probably the first real American master of a new modernist art form, which is abstract expressionism and, you know, he's very famous for these big drip paintings, Mm -hmm. and so in a survey of of modernist art, of course, you'd expect to see him, but she also put up this other abstract artwork and said, and this is by Lee Krasner. Lee is a male or female name, and so I wasn't prepared when she said who was his wife, and kind of the top of my head exploded, like, wait a second, right, Um, and when, and I asked her, could I research Lee Krasner for my paper for the class and she said yes you're gonna have a hard time finding information I had to find most of it through his biography and research on him but what I found out was that she had been an abstract painter before him she had been his boss at the WPA she had been a very important student of Hans Hoffman who was the the guru of abstraction in uh, instruction in New York mid-century I mean all of these things sort of woke me up to say, wait a second, why is he he the only person you've ever heard of? And I, and even in telling this story, I'm a little sorry that I really refer to her in relationship to him, but that's because he's such a towering figure.
1: Right. Right. And that's sometimes the way people, people know, you know, in order to get to a certain place of progress, you kind of have to step over the, the way to like recognize, okay, this is, it was just really, it was poignant the way you you wrote it in the book um, where you you said like there was one painting by Pollock and one by someone named Lee. And then you said this Lee was a woman and she was a painter and she was good. And I was like, Ooh, I like it. And then it was just, you know, who happens to be his wife.
0: (laughs) All those seeds were there in that first moment. And the other seed that was there was that she, my professor read, a quote from Jackson Pollock when he was 19, which is the age I was sitting in that chair. He was born in Wyoming and, and went to high school in California. I was born and raised in Montana and went to high school in California. And I weirdly believed that that meant you couldn't do great things. Some little story, some Mm -hmm. secret story I wasn't even fully conscious of that great artists don't come from places like that. Um, And he said in this questionnaire, What do you? The question was, "What do you want to be someday?" And he wrote, "I want to be an artist of some kind." Uh And she kind of snickered at the class snickers because that's kind of a naive and funny thing to say. But my my soul answered that I wanted to be an artist of some kind. And then suddenly, here's work by a woman, and it's fantastic, right? And I feel feel like everything came from that moment. That's so cool. That's like the spark moment for you. Yeah, it's like you in the spinning class, right?
1: I love, my son always says he wants to be an artist of some sort and a chemist or a fisherman. It's the same but it's thing. always an artist of some sort. He actually, but he's an old soul.
0: Yeah, but you could be a chemist artist. I mean. <laughs> Why not? That's, that's the thing. That's another lie we tell ourselves right. or that we've, or that we've bought into maybe. Or maybe you can be an artist of chemistry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you can redesign Absolutely. that periodic table and make it. Awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> so Montana, tell great artists yeah. apparently do come from Montana. They do. They do. Oh, yeah. So what was growing up like? Did you have like the beautiful skies and live on this million yeah. acres with
0: animals? <laughs> I did. Um, I mean, it's funny. I have an unpublished memoir, um, a chapter of which was in Best American Sports Writing 2013. The memoir is called Home Team, and you can find chapters of it online in Narrative Magazine which is free if anyone wants to read them, but it's, it's a, a love story. free things. Yeah. So it's totally free. Sign up. Fantastic <laughs> magazine. It's kind of like a free New Yorker. All the people that you read the New Yorker are there for free. Not me. I'm not in the New Yorker. You get other people too. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I So what's the name th- of it again? Sorry. Uh, oh, the name of the magazine is yeah. narrative magazine. Narrative magazine. Okay. And it's totally free. It will say something like subscribe and subscribe just means sign up. Okay, cool. There's no, there's no, so it's narrative.com. Is how you, okay. how you get to it. It's fantastic. I'm telling you like Tobias Wolf, Joyce Carroll Oates, TC Boyle, all the, all the biggies. Very cool. Um, so I had a, a chapter in that. I was super excited. It was it, um, selected for the best American sports writing. And it was really about, so I'm one of nine children. Um, wow. I know. <laughs> and where do you fit in the mix? I'm the eighth of nine. Okay. And the story was sort of about, it was really about sports. It was about, it's, It's about me being the eighth of nine kids. My mother was a basketball player in the 40s in Montana. My two older sisters came of age before Title IX. I came of age after Title IX and how that changed the course of my life. And it's really stories about growing up as a swimmer and basketball player in Montana. And it's also about... Growing up in a place that was so imbued with these masculine myths of the West, mm-hmm. uh, and with six brothers, and with a former World War II Marine as a father, in a place with an Air Force base and nuclear missile silos, and just everything male you can think of—that's so much part of the mythos of Montana. Right. And being this like scrappy, skinny girl, being like, I do not want to be a nun or a mother of nine. Uh huh. I want to be something else, but that's I wasn't sure what it was. Um, and how I found that and how sports helped me find that.
1: Yeah.
0: That's very cool.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> were you a bit of a tomboy just because you had to be super,
0: super tomboy, super tomboy, like short hair, like, thank God for Dorothy Hamill because you were allowed to have short hair, right, right. um, and wore boys clothes. And actually this is very Freudian, but for years I called myself Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Peter. <laughs> yep. Uh, so I was super, super, I, I actually took one of those um, like surveys at one point where, you know, how to tell if you're, uh, if you are transgender. Right. Uh, and I had nine of the 10 things when I was a child, but I'm, I'm straight. Like I'm, yeah, it just, you're, you're I think it was just, it was just um, the way I wanted to be in the world.
1: Well, and it's also when you grow up a certain way and, and your role models, right? I mean, that's
0: yeah. who there was to look up to. I mean, I, yeah, I think it was a way of saying, I don't want that. I want this. Call me Peter. Yeah. And I, and, and I'm, I, I hope it doesn't have to be like that for girls in the future. I hope they can look to women and go like, oh, I want to be Abby Wambach. Right. I want to be whoever, you know, and I can be that person and and be a woman and be fantastic.
1: I feel like we're getting there.
0: I do too. For sure. Oh my God, my, my 15 year old daughter, she could Meredith, she could even probably break you in half. She is so freaking strong. <laughs> And so into being strong. Yeah,
1: that's definitely a change. I mean, even yeah. from when I was doing Olympic weightlifting in high school, girls strong in 1992, 94 was not cool.
0: No, oh my gosh. Um, and that's
1: no. not that long ago.
0: I mean, not at all. Well, I guess
1: it actually is.
0: Well, well. But <laughs> My daughter does Olympic weightlifting just because her basketball team and her soccer team wants her to do that. And she loves it and she loves crushing it. Yeah. And I did too. I it just
1: wasn't cool. It wasn't
0: cool. No, to be crushing it. No, no, it was not cool. The boys didn't cool. like you. Um,
1: and I made the like fatal mistake of a guy I was dating when I was fifteen or sixteen. He said, "Well, I could beat you arm wrestling," and I said, "No, you can't." And then I wrestled him, and I beat him, and that was bad. That was bad. <laughs> Yeah, that was the end of that relationship. That was it. It never quite recovered. So, and maybe you should never just arm
0: wrestle boys just from a starting point. It's funny because that's something like I, them. That's like a phrase I use a lot with people is saying like, "Okay, I'll arm wrestle you over. It. I'll arm wrestle you over right. it." And I don't know where that comes from, but now I'm thinking maybe it came from my brothers when I was young. Right. Right.
1: right. So one of the chapters in your book is on the artist, Kara Walker, and I love this chapter, but I, what really drew me in was the quote, um, from her daughter that says, mommy makes mean art.
0: So awesome. Yeah. I love
1: it. But like, what, tell me a little bit about Kara Walker. I find her really one of the most fascinating ones in your book. Oh,
0: me too. I mean, she's, well, she is, believe it or not, the only living artist in the book and she is from Stockton originally which is a kind of a cow town in California so totally against my blows up my myth in my head of you can't come from anywhere and make great art she's African American and just makes in your face so I don't care if you're black white male female it is hard to take in um so it's I can't really say it's, it is political, I guess, in in some ways, but in some ways it's not political. In some ways it's just like a historical mirror in your face Right. of, uh, for example, her work, um, A Subtlety, which was this giant sphinx made out of sugar at the Domino Sugar Factory in Brooklyn two, two summers ago uh, that is a big white sphinx with a mammy's face and the labia of the sphinx is like, you know, 200 feet high in the back. So it's sexualizing just the way the kind of workers, I mean, sugar is a major part of the slave trade. Mm -hmm. It is um, totally imbued with this sense of the timelessness of art history. It's a big sculpture of a sphinx, goes back to Egypt. And it has this super disturbing stereotype caricature of being black in the mammy's face. And at the same time, it's... And it's white, so white, and it's glittering and so strangely beautiful Mm -hmm. and moving. So you have all these contradictory things happening in your head at once that you feel like you're going to (laughs) explode. Like, I can't hold all these contradictions. And that's kind of how race in America is and kind of how our, our history is. Right. And and just the the perfect metaphor of, you know, here was all this raw sugar, this dark sugar that the slave trade brought into Brooklyn, and it was refined and whitened and, like, purified into right. white sugar by this factory. I mean, it's, she's just freaking amazing. She won a MacArthur Junior Grant, Genius Grant when she was in her early 20s. She's amazing.
1: And she's the only living one, you said? Left in my book. book. Yeah. How old is she?
0: Um, you know what? I am not sure. She's probably around 50 because, um, I have a friend who grew up with her, believe it or not. 1969. She was born. Oh, so
1: very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So who out of the, I know it's hard to say. People always ask me questions like this. Um, yeah. but who is your favorite artist out of your book?
0: <laughs> I know what's coming. Um, uh, my favorite artist is one of the most obscure. And when I say favorite, I don't mean, I, I mean, I want to just say that, I'm not talking about qualitative analysis of art, which I think is somewhat suspect anyway. Um, And when you say
1: qualitative, you mean just saying this is better because of Right. I'm not
0: saying this artist is the best in the book. This artist is the artist who's had the most influence on my life, the person I'm still obsessed with, the person I'm probably going to write my next book about, and that I was the most excited to write the chapter about. Um, is Adelaide Labiguillard, who it was a French artist uh, during, well, before and during and after the French Revolution. Um, she was just a absolutely amazing woman who fought for women's rights, the rights of women artists in France, stood up, you know, to the scariest people imaginable in the French hierarchy in art to support her female students and to try to get them Um, the right to be professional artists and to exhibit at the Royal Salon. And I just love her. And she has um, a monumental self-portrait with two of her students at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that I visited almost every day for five years and that changed the course of my life. That interaction with that one artwork.
1: Well, you say somewhere in your book that these, these women artists were like lifelines to you during your life.
0: Completely. And
1: it, It's so fascinating, like how someone, you know, who's not even alive or or whatever can just be a lifeline to you. Was it more looking back on sort of, I can be anything I want to be because these women have paved the way because they've proven it? Or is it just about like pure grit and perseverance and their example? Like, what is it that made them a lifeline for you?
0: Uh, Well, I think it's both of those things. And also, for example, in the case of Adelaide Libby-Guillard, too, I was in the best art history program in the country. If I had finished my PhD, I would have gotten a job either as a full professor somewhere or you know, at a major museum. The head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art at that time was a graduate of the Institute of Fine Arts where I was going to school. And, but I knew at some point, I actually want to be a writer, not an art historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll say I've made my living most of my adult life teaching art history or being involved with art history, but I've been writing that whole time too. So I've done both, but to give the art history PhD is very long. It would have been probably another seven to nine years of re- of study before I would have gotten it. And instead I spent those years writing and cultivating that craft. And it was interacting with Libby Giar's painting and, and saying, you know, if she could go through the French revolution with the fear of being executed, Right. And stick stick to her art. <laughs> Maybe I could just not be a scaredy cat and write something down.
1: <laughs> right.
0: And, you know, I mean, you know, I don't want to get too much into things that are, I don't think you're super private. I think we all know this, that <laughs> yes, you quit your Bridget. job. Right. Yeah. Um, and I quit my PhD program and you do that without a net. You do that not knowing what's going to happen. And it's super scary. It's easy to look back and go, Oh, it all worked out. I'm psyched. Like it was great. But there were a lot of years where I went, that was maybe a mistake. Yeah.
1: And um, I wonder about that too. I mean, I, my, I talked to my mom the other day and she's like, you and your dad, you just will go forward and you, you just have courage. You have lots of courage. Yeah. And she used that word. And I thought, no, you know, just like you said, I'm not like about to be executed during the French revolution. I'm just trying to pick courage. myself up and
0: move <laughs> forward. Um, you no, know, It's still hard. It's still hard. And it's really hard when you have a family. And that was the other thing was, you know, and when I got how, how these women rose up to meet me at times when I needed them. You know, when I found out I was pregnant with my first child, it was an unplanned pregnancy. I'd been married for seven years. We had never talked about having kids. Like it just had not come up. I somehow didn't realize that could happen.
1: <laughs> now, how old How old were you? Did you get married young?
0: Yeah. 23. Okay. And so I was 30, found out I was pregnant was want to say now I was super psyched I, like Some biological imperative took over my body in that moment, uh-huh. and I was thrilled and also terrified, and I was especially terrified, A, because I had barely made a living for the last seven years because I was prioritizing my art, and B, because I didn't know you could have children and B, a creative person. I know that sounds bizarre, but I was obsessed with Virginia Woolf, who was childless. Right. And it was reading her diaries at the very time I found out I was pregnant, realizing she had a sister who painted, who had three children, who was, surprise, even I didn't know, a really important modernist painter. And I, looking into her life and seeing the chaos that she lived with, including (laughs) taking care of her sister, (laughs) and continued to paint till the day she died and made great work, important work prioritized her work at the same time she prioritized being a mother was there could not have been a better role model for me. And I also, I live in San Francisco and, you know, my kids got a little older and I would get in that place of like, I can't, Drive to the, you know, effing <laughs> field across town in crosstown traffic to take my kid to an hour and a half soccer practice and get my work done. Are you talking about my day today? Because that is like happening at uh, four o'clock. You know I, exactly. And so I had these super, in my opinion, truncated days because I spent the second half of my day driving my kid around, especially my daughter. Ironically, I have a, a son and daughter, but especially my daughter, driving her to sports things mm-hmm. from the time she was very small, and. You know, at some point encountered a local artist, Ruth Asawa, who had six children. And I don't know why I always
1: laugh. I feel like anything over five makes me laugh. Please. I just go, I can't. Well, I can't understand.
0: Anything over three. Come on. <laughs> six? Six. And not only is her work in the de Young Museum and in the Museum of Modern Art, the de Young is our, our a big museum in San Francisco, um, and you know and her public sculpture and fountains are all over San Francisco and all over California she started the first public high school dedicated to the arts in the on the west coast that is now called the Ruth Asawa School of the Arts and she spearheaded sort of a, a, a grassroots campaign to keep art alive in education in San Francisco that's those are Huge things done by someone who, as she said, my parents were farmers and I saw that you just keep working. Yeah. No big deal. Just keep working.
1: This is such a huge theme. I mean, this is a huge theme in my life. And I, I mean, I encounter it on a daily basis that people say, well, I don't know how you do what you do with kids or how do you do triathlon with kids? And, and you just do. And you figure out what you're passionate about and you have to set aside the time and prioritize it, which when you're in the middle of it, it's really hard to see kind of how you're, you're going to do it and, and your way out yeah. of it. But it it's, it really does help. And I think to see other people who are somehow, you know, crawling through it and, and digging out of the trenches. And, and I think that's why people for whatever reason tend to flock to me is because yeah. like, she's a mess and she's doing things. <laughs> totally, I think There's that certain camaraderie, like with the messiness and, and Seeing people that aren't doing it perfectly, but they're doing it nevertheless, and
0: um, so that was a lot that, of. That's the trick. I, I swear that's the trick. I mean, when I left my program, artistry program, it was because I had this final epiphanous thought. If epiphanous is an actual adjective, I like it. Um, yeah, it, which was I would rather be. A, I'm. I would rather be a mediocre writer than a great art historian. I know that is true. I would rather know that I just and by mediocre, I just mean never famous, never Mm -hmm. great, but I didn't shoot, you know, to say like, I don't have to be good. I tried to be good, but if that never happens, I would rather have pursued that than become the greatest art historian in America.
1: Yeah. I'm with you. That was me in the legal profession.
0: Exactly. And to know that is huge. And it also gives you so much freedom to just chip away and do what you can and be messy and kind of suck. And, you know, I'm also a triathlete and I'm not a very good one. And sometimes (laughs) people say to me, You know, I'll have friends who are like, I had a friend who ran the Boston Marathon on Monday. Is that yesterday? Oh my gosh, yesterday. And she has said to me many times, I always love your attitude that, you know, even though you run a five and a half hour marathon, you're still happy. (laughs) But I am like, I think it's
1: awesome. It is awesome. And I also love the people who feel like they need to say, even though you're slow, it's good
0: you have a good attitude. <laughs> yes. Oh, I know. I get that oh all the time. I'm slower than you, but it's not that I'm trying to be slow. I'm also not saying, oh, whatever. Right. But we're working really but, hard with what we got. I know. Work, working hard with what I've got, and triathlon is not my priority. My writing is, and right. my family is. But I still prioritize it. I don't know if that makes sense, no, but it I, does place where I'm allowed to just... I just want to relax with triathlon. I don't want it to be this other stress in my life.
1: Right. And that's I really important. To... I mean, that's what I tell my athletes at the point. Because obviously I'm not coaching elites. <laughs> if, if an elite hires yes. me, they need to get their head checked. I don't know what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to, you know, ride next to you in a car and get... If I get an elite, I'm going to get a megaphone and a motorcycle. And I'm going to chase yes. them. But, you know, I don't even know where I was going with that. But... <laughs> Just oh, doing, I get it. Doing the best you can with what you got, and and I think you know. Oh, I know what I was going to say. If I wanted to like get way faster and, and work like a lot harder and let a lot of things fall by the wayside, it would still be like varying degrees of like fast. It still wouldn't be yes. enough because it's not in the cards for me to be <laughs> that way. I,
0: I don't think it is for me either, and and I'm really okay with that. And I actually, even though I understand this, like on the Women for Try um, Facebook post. I've seen people say many times, stop saying you're slow. Stop apologizing. Okay. I, I agree with that sentiment and it's also okay if you are slow. (laughs) Right.
1: I I get tired of that too. I get tired of people saying you're not slow or don't apologize. Well, I'm
0: not apologizing. I'm just stating the obvious. (laughs) Exactly. And it's fine. And I also get bummed when people say to me, um, Oh, you know, you did really great. And next time you'll be even faster. It's like, maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's fine. I'm fine. Or at least I just want to make the cutoff. Yeah. Or at least least you finished. finished. Oh my gosh. Totally. That makes me insane because it's like
1: there was a big doubt that I wouldn't number one. And I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm so bullheaded that I don't ever go into a race and think there's not a possibility of finishing. I feel like the first time I stand on A body of water shore, or whatever, and think I can't finish this, I will
0: just walk away. That's probably so, wise. That's so very wise.
1: tell me, like, at least you finished, I'm
0: like, well, I started, of
1: course I finished. <laughs> but I, I mean, know, I know it's not always the case. But
0: I have to tell my, my, um, my first 70.3 story. I'll be very, very fast, but here's how I know you can almost always finish. <laughs> so I had only done two triathlons before I'd done a sprint and I did wildflower Olympic distance. And then I signed up for a 70.3 and, um, you know, I was super nervous it was Oceanside. Oh, that's, uh,
1: that's a tall order, too.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a tall order, and it, just the logistics were crazy because I had not done those kind of multi, uh, what do they call that, you know, where there's two tra- transition areas, and so right. I had to get my bike one place, I had to ride it back. It's like, you know, four in the morning, and I'm just, so I was very stressed out figuring out how to, or you know, like, then I, you know, then I got to the swim thing, and I realized I had to get my bike back, or I had to get my bag back to bike transition area so i had to ride that so anyway just all these things i hadn't factored so i got kind of late uh to the swim to get ready for the swim was pulling on my wetsuit and heard a pop and i think and pulling on my wetsuit and it's still pitch black and i held my finger up to the you know the klieg lights or whatever they are and it's in a shape of a w my middle finger on my left hand like it <laughs> It's completely, it looked like a cartoon. You like broke bending your own waist.
1: finger putting on your butt. I,
0: I broke the tendon on my left finger in my like haste and scaredness. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like I'm freaking out. And I look around and there's, no, there's, there, obviously there's no medical people because nothing has happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of wandered around for a little while. And I was like, well, what choice do I have? I can't. I can't get back to the other transition. I'm just, I've trained for this. I'm just going to do it. So I did it. I mean, my transitions were literally like 10 minutes long because I had to have help doing everything. Cause I couldn't use my left hand at all.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: And if I hadn't been riding a tri bike, I couldn't have done it because I couldn't use my left hand to do anything. I had right. to just rest. Um, but I finished. It was super fun. I was psyched. And that, and I, so like, you can, you know, have your tendon pop off your left finger and be Okay. <laughs> And swimming was insane. I mean, it was like, Ow. wow. But it didn't hurt.
1: That was the... that Because was, you were running off of pure, like, broke-finger <laughs> adrenaline at that point.
0: Probably. 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 Oh so, um, yeah, I don't know what my point of that is. Just that, you know, you can still do it. Just give up the... Go- like, if you have goals for speed or whatever, it might still be worth it to do it. Because I was so happy. Yeah. I've, well,
1: I've and helped. you know what? I think a lot of times when you have those last minute just messes and Hail Marys and things that just get in the way of your plans, they require you to focus on something else. And then you end up turning your mental game around because you're not focused on the thing that you're originally afraid of. Yes. And so like the whole time you're probably like, ah, my finger, ah, my finger, you know? And so you weren't thinking, oh, my legs and how I can't breathe.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, completely. And by the run, I was just like, oh my God, I am killing it. I'm amazing. And right. I just have to say also, this is how bad it was. On the bike, a woman passed me who had 67 on her calf. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm being passed by 67-year-old women. And then I realized she had only had one leg.
1: Oh, I know those. Right? They passed yeah. frequently too. Like,
0: so fast. And I was passed, you know, right near the end of the run by an 80 or seven. No, he was 80. 80-year-old man who was race walking. Yes.
1: I I think he's been in all my races. He's been (laughs) in all my races too.
0: So, you know, whatever. It's good. They're amazing. I hope I am as strong as them when I'm 67 and 80. That would be so cool. I feel like I have nowhere to go but up. It's just got to happen. Yeah, (laughs) I I think it will. (laughs)
1: that's so funny um yeah I'm always passed by the the older folks and then my favorite I was telling my friend yesterday is when people go blowing by me on the bike or on the run and they're like swim bike mom you're such an inspiration (laughs) and then they're like gone (laughs) I'm like really because and and I love to hear it I mean obviously any it's a compliment but I'm always like there's good grief I'm glad I could inspire you to be faster (laughs) Yeah, I just sit oh, totally. in the back of the pack, but it's so funny. Um, so the, the title of this podcast is The Same 24 Hours, and what that means is we all have the same 24 hours in our day, and it's just how we use those 24 hours that kind of sets us up for our, our destiny yeah. and our failures and our successes, and with that in mind, I was flipping through the book, and uh, I looked at chapter 15, and Anne, um, there's a quote from Ann Dillard that says, how we spend our days is, of course how we spend our lives. And yep. I thought that was just so poignant because it really is. It's the, it's the small habits and day by day that makes everything. It, it adds up. And I think so it's many everything. times we
0: forget that. It's Have everything. you seen
1: that in your life as well?
0: Oh, entirely. I mean, the, the most essential, Um, ingredient to success I think as an athlete, an artist, probably as a human being is just chipping away, like just Mm -hmm. chipping away and chipping away and chipping away and not allowing yourself to feel overwhelmed by any one thing to just Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, let it wash over you and just do it. I mean, it's, it's a, a banal, um, advertising, uh, statement, just do it, but it's also the best advice there is in the world. Just it and stop effing thinking about it and stop right. effing reading about it and stop effing watching it on TV and just do it na-
1: navel gazing is what my um, father-in-law calls it and you know navel gazing is good to a degree but I think we're like in this it's dangerous cyclical cyclical what word is that Bridget <laughs> it's c- cyclical yeah thank you <laughs> maybe I don't know cynical a cynical oh cynical a and cyclical, oh, um, a
0: cynical cynical circle.
1: We're in this cyclical navel gazing, where we like gaze at our navel. We look up, we look back down at our navel. Where we just need to get up and move. I mean, you know, I'm like all about Tony Robbins these days because he was—he's all about action. And I get so tired. I just feel like when I was dealing with all the the mental issues and the addiction issues, I was just in my head all the time. I was just like, man, you know, complaining ah. in my head and stuck in my head. And so to do to just do it and to take. Action is just my theme right now. And then when you say not to let any one thing impact you, to let it just wash over you, that's so major. It's like it's the don't sweat the small stuff. I mean, for lack of a yeah. better term, and then just do it. So just so what, do is, it. what is some of the small stuff that like makes you sweat? <laughs> like, well oh, I mean thieves.
0: <laughs> being told to relax, that will send me <laughs> into uh, outer space for sure. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Even if that's what you're trying to do, you're
0: trying to let it wash over you. I am, but I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't want to say high strung, but I'm tightly wound. Mm -hmm. And that's partly why endurance sports appeal to me. They help me unwind. Um, I, you know, especially as mothers, I think one of the things that can really set me off is the expectations, expectation that we do everything, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it's for school, for our kids, for our homes. And I can get you know wrapped around the crank with that stuff. And to just be able to say, if I don't go to this meeting, it doesn't mean I'm a bad parent. It doesn't mean I'm a bad mother. It doesn't mean I don't love my children. It doesn't mean I'm not a team player. It just means I'm not going to the meeting. Right. It's all it means. It's I said means.
1: something on one podcast where I said it was about prioritizing. And I said, you know what? You don't have to go to PTA. No. And someone no. in a group posted, I disagree with what she said about not going to PTA. PTA is very important. And there's this like diatribe about it, which I thought was hilarious because I serve on the school board. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't mention I served on the school board. I just didn't go to PTA. You know, it's so
0: funny what people's perceptions of what and we're doing. That's the thing. You cannot alter that perception. No. So, I mean, I, I, taught at my kid's school in the high school part of the school for years and parents in the grade school didn't nec- in my kids classes didn't necessarily know that I was a teacher at the high school and so when I didn't show up to things they just thought oh she's just a flake would I mm-hmm. be at a high school event right and mm-hmm. sometimes those things would come back to me and they would be really crushing I would feel terrible I actually had a woman gossip to me on the sidewalk once about this terrible parent who was a teacher <laughs> at the high school and it was me and I said that's me and she goes no no I'm sure it's not you it's someone who's awful she's like this I'm like no that that's me and I was very like calm and ha-ha with her in the moment and I cried in my car afterwards and like yeah. hit the steering wheel and was hysterical and I just want to say let women moms let's be great to each other like okay. really let's do that and when you're pissed off at someone else isn't taking up their end of the rope. You don't know why. It could be any reason at all. They could have their own issues with addiction. They could be overwhelmed in other ways. They could be prioritizing something else. And you know what? You don't need to hold up your end of the rope either.
1: Yeah. It's you decide so you don't want to.
0: You are free to put it down. Put it down and walk away. It's you such do a not burden. Have to-
1: And and I I felt it massively when I was like doing the lawyer gig in a suit and doing the commute and I would, you know, show up with just sweaty armpits in my suit, like 10 minutes late to the ballet performance, just looking like crap and feeling like crap and. You know, it's hard to not look over at other women and be like, "How? look, at they've got it together. Or that you feel like they're looking at you like, wow, she couldn't even be here on time. When I'm like,
0: well, 85
1: blew up. Like, have you looked at Atlanta traffic lately?
0: Right. <laughs> We're and you know in what? Most of the time, they're not thinking about you at all. No, yes. Oh, and really when they are, they might have the wrong impression. And you mm-hmm. can't change that, actually. <laughs> that's no. a horrible reality. So how do
1: we but get to not- that point of support? I mean, I was picking up my kids... <laughs> from summer camp last year and I was in um, spandex of course Um, at the time I was still doing the law job but I was doing it from home and I went to pick up my kids and they have this face painter that comes in on Friday afternoons and she is the bane of my existence because you have to go in and your kids have to get their face painted you can't leave without the face paint yeah and you have to wait (laughs) And I got to the point where I was like, there's no face painting today. We do face paint once a month or whatever. But right. I walked in that day. I was like, okay, I'm going to wait. I'm going to be mom of the year and let him get the face paint. And so I sit down and this woman comes in and stilettos and a suit and her daughter,
0: well, she moves her daughter in front of mine and I'm <gasps> sitting there. And I oh, go, so that that's the kind of thing where <laughs> no amount of spiritual uh, preparedness. Yeah. <laughs> I,
1: I felt like I was hovering over myself. And so, oh, oh, um, oh. And we actually had somewhere to be. We had to be at a football or a soccer game or something. We had somewhere to be. And um, I said, um, excuse me, you know, my daughter was ahead of yours. And she goes, she looks at me literally head to toe. And she <laughs> goes, it's not like you have anywhere to be.
0: You are kidding me. Oh, and my gosh. I
1: thought, I'll tell you where you're going to be. <laughs> you know? It's like, that's when my Savannah, Georgia trailer park comes out. <laughs> yeah. But that perception, I was like. I got up this morning at five thirty. <laughs> I rode my bike. Right. I took, you know, right. brought my kids to camp. Right. I worked nine hours just like you. I'm just in Spanish, you know, but that, right. that complete lack of care, I think just for other people and the lack of understanding because <laughs> we're okay. so mired in
0: our own BS. <laughs> right. I mean, to be clear, she is a terrible, unredeemable person. Like that is <laughs> the worst thing I've ever heard. And you know, something bad is going to happen. Like she's gonna have to well, come to her happen. own,
1: her kid yeah. Oh, get good. Her face painted, and then I felt bad because she snatched up her little girl and walked out, I and know. I was like, "Oh man,
0: I should just let her kid get her face painted." Yeah, <laughs> but that I'm like, mean, that's, that's not on me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but anyway. but the, so the, I think I feel like all I can take from moments like that is to try my hardest to remember that when I'm the other person. Like, I don't know this other person's situation. Right. She could have been working just like me. She could have the same kind of stress as I have. She, you know, And also she could be reactive. Like, I said and did so many terrible things when my kids were little out of reactivity yeah. because I was stressed and only thinking about my needs. That's right. And my kids and what, what my family needed. Um, so yeah, it's, so it's hard, man. It's, yeah, hard. it's hard. I mean,
1: I think it's so funny though. If she would have just been like, Hey, do you mind? I would have been like, sure. You know, no problem. Maybe.
0: <laughs> maybe right. not. Right. But, maybe um, not. maybe yeah. not. Yeah. But also I think it's, it can be hard to transition from your work persona to your mom persona when you have that, that tiny transitional moment of picking up your kid <laughs> where, you know, you've been like the boss and you've been hanging out the hard phrases or whatever. And then to switch gears can be really difficult. Yeah. That's true too. Oh, but you know what? You still can't talk to adults that way. No way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So Sorry. No.
1: Oh my gosh. Um, one of the quotes that I love, um, from Susan O'Malley, who she's, that's the last chapter, right? Yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. Um, was that she, she said art before dishes.
0: Oh, that is my mantra. I love that so much. Heart
1: before dishes. And that kind of falls into my idea of the sucky rotation schedule. I don't know if you've read anything I've written on that, but it basically says you have this big laundry list. And at some point you have this line and like things have to fall under it. And then when they fall under it, you let them reside there for a little bit and then you move them up on the list. But that is totally my kind of philosophy too. And when I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like for me, it's
0: triathlon before laundry always. (laughs) Yes, and it's so easy, for whatever bizarre reason, to do the thing we ostensibly don't want to do, laundry dishes, rather than the thing we want to do, triathlon training, writing. Right. Like, why is it easier to choose the thing we don't want to do? Because we feel guilty. I think so. I don't know. I just, I I wonder about, it's like a question I have sometimes, like, why is it easier to do that thing? I I think it's all, oh, Oh, sorry, go ahead. You go. (laughs) Okay, well, I just think sometimes I notice this where um, – and uh, my podcast co-host, I have a podcast, The Grotto Pod, about writing and the writing life. Oh. And he says sometimes when he's working from home, he can trick himself into thinking doing the laundry and the dishes is writing, right? Oh, I've checked. I've ticked those boxes. I've done something. I've accomplished oh, something. Huh. And And I think there's a little something to that, too. Like, the dishes are finite. Yeah. Well, in that tiny moment, they're finite and you finish them, you've done it. Oh. And you have this moment of feeling virtuous and um, maybe that's the hit you're looking for. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And that's what I was totally going to say is when my husband comes home (laughs) and this is like traditional (laughs) female role, right? I'm like flashing back to the fifties, but I feel so much prouder when I'm standing over a pile of folded laundry than like sweating over my keyboard.
0: Yeah. Even oh, though I've been
1: more productive and he probably knows I've been more productive if I'm haggard and
0: smell. <laughs> oh, completely. <laughs> I completely buy into that too. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I'll stop writing at like, I don't know, you know, 350 and just take 10 minutes to make the bed. So it looks like. <laughs> I've been busy. I've been working. I did something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. God knows I wouldn't live in this filth all day while I work. Right. I totally but, would. Um, I'm better than I used to be for sure. That's awesome. in terms of just letting it go. Well, this is fun, Bridget. I love you. You're a hoot. Uh, Same, man. I have been such your fan for so many years and I am psyched you're doing a podcast. Love hearing your voice every week. It's great. Well, thank you so
1: much. So you guys, you have to check out this book. It is more than an art history book. It's fabulous. It is women who are lifelines. You can find your lifeline in this book and your story. In one of these 15 female artists, and also in Bridget's story, which is intertwined in the book. It's really fantastic. It's called Broad Strokes. I'll put it up in the show
0: notes. Um, Where can they buy it, Bridget? Well, you can buy it at any local bookseller or on Amazon, of course. Um, I think those are the two most convenient ways. Very
1: cool. And what are you on uh, social media? Where can people follow you?
0: Okay, okay. this is going to sound complicated, but it's not. My Twitter handle is at B. Quinterest like Pinterest. Ah, but B. Bridget Quinn Q U I N N Um, So at BQinterest is my Twitter handle and Instagram. And you can find me on my website, BridgetQuinnauthor.com. Very cool.
1: Well thanks so much for joining us. And I am looking forward to seeing what you do with your next book about the French artist who I cannot pronounce.
0: Adelaide Labiguiar. Yes. Very nice. Very nice. Well, (laughs) probably not good French, but that's what I, that's how I say it.
1: It's better than my French. I can't do (laughs) French
0: words at all. Well, I don't know. We'll have to ask a French person. (laughs) Of which neither of us are.
1: (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Bridget. It was fun.
0: Thanks, Meredith. I loved it. And I look forward to hearing more from you. All right. Thanks, lady. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.